Chris, welcome to our Tuesday edition. Yeah, it's uh, it's not Friday like normal. Our life is all wacky lately. <laughs> Can you believe it's February already? Dude, I'm so excited it's February. I'm going to Vegas next week. Oh, awesome. What for? Uh, vacation. Shane and I are nice. leaving the kids with my parents and her parents. and Nice. That'll be fun. Yeah, it's like... The one thing I've been looking forward to for the past like two months, like when things are like really crappy, I'm like Vegas, Vegas. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, how are you? Doing good. Doing good. It's been, uh, oh, doing the same old support and everything else. Recording, screencast, you name it. Same thing. <laughs> Exhilarating. Today we are joined by someone who in our community probably needs no introduction, but, uh, for those who, of you who might not know, I will let our guest uh, introduce himself. Ben. Hi. How's it going? Uh, ben, what... Uh, let's see here. If someone is meeting you for the first time, hmm. how would you introduce yourself? <laughs> well, when I'm talking to like normal civilians, I generally sort of simplify and shorten. And so they're like, oh, what do you do? And I usually just say, like, oh, I'm a programmer. And that's usually all they want to hear. And they're like, all right, cool. Yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> and I just let the thread die there. Uh, but if, if I were talking to someone uh, more technical or that, that was actually curious, uh, I would explain that uh, I sort of am a programmer, but uh, more accurately, uh, last year I started a software company with a couple friends. And so now I'm actually sort of more a uh, sales and marketing person slash CEO founder person. So uh, life has gotten more interesting and more complicated, uh, but more fun too. That's awesome. Are you uh, are you doing any programming these days? Just a little bit, actually. Yeah. So our, our app has a Rails backend, and I'm I guess the most familiar with Rails of the three of us. And so there are some features that I end up doing, and I still like doing it. It's, it's kind of fun to to take some time and, and get in the zone like that, uh, which is harder to do with um, non programming activities. So it's it's I wouldn't say it's very often. It's it's maybe every other week I'll write some code. That's awesome. So before we kind of dig into that, um, I know you best from your ThoughtBot days. Mm. Uh, Upcase, is that the name of it? That's right. Uh, I saw you on many an Upcase video. So before that, how did you find yourself becoming a programmer? Um, I fell in love with computers at a pretty young age. My dad was in the high-tech industry, and so we got like an old 8086 uh, a long time ago when I was really young and I was just immediately obsessed with it. Uh, it was just, it just spoke to me in this way that I was like, I love this. I want to do nothing except like experiment with this thing. And so um, I sort of always knew I would end up in computers and by dumb luck, it turns out that was actually a job that you could do that the world valued. And so um, I eventually realized that, like, oh, programming is one thing you can do with computers and that is interesting. And, and that tickles my brain in kind of the most pleasurable way like i find it's just so satisfying and interesting to do and uh so when did it start i guess i started programming a little bit in high school not really but it was really this there was a class i took uh, my freshman year of college that was an introduction to programming that was uh, in c and we just wrote like like 50 different little c programs and that was when i got going and i was like yep this is amazing i love it i want to keep doing this how did so you c- oh go ahead no go ahead chris i, I was gonna say how did you get into 
because uh, I think a lot of people started that way where you're doing like C or Visual Basic or something. How did you transition into doing like web stuff? Um, I got into web stuff. So I was working, I got a job as a programmer after school that I really didn't like. It was this very weird company where they had like invented their own programming languages and um, were like very, had a very strong like not invented here thing going on. So like they wrote their own email client and source control and operating system. And like just, it was just kind of a bizarre kind of back place. And I was like pretty miserable there because I was aware of what modern software development looked like, but I knew we were not doing it. And so to sort of um, pass the time or make myself feel better, I would go home in the evenings and weekends and write Ruby because Ruby on Rails was kind of just gaining in popularity. And um, so that was like my first exposure to like, oh, you can write code that like runs in a web browser. That's cool. Or like, you know, hits a web browser. Uh, Yeah. That that was my on-ramp. I remember when I started, I like you know, all those tutorials were like, here's how to build like a desktop app. And I tried to build in Python, some cross-platform GUIs. And it was like, this is so frustrating. Can I just do it, you know, once and put it in a browser and have it work the same everywhere? That's mm-hmm. kind of what, what drove my transition. Cause yeah, uh, you know, building stuff as you probably got, you pro- probably are aware with tuple right now, you know, all of those different sort of, uh, things you have to do for every platform you're trying to compile desktop software to. Yes, for sure. Although at the time, like it, that, that wasn't really speaking to me. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in anything like so, um, I don't know, noble or advanced or something. I, I was literally just like, I hate my job. Uh, what is the least like my job language I can use? Like, what's the most beautiful, most programmer focused? Like, what's going to make me the happiest that I can do on the side that will a just give me like something a pleasant experience, and then b maybe become like a, a skill I could get hired for. And so I was just happy to write Ruby. And it turns out that Rails is what you can write Ruby to do most of the time. And so that's where I ended up. What uh, what version of Rails and Ruby was out at the time you started doing all this? Um, I I'm pretty sure the Rails was like version two one or something. It's definitely in the twos somewhere. I don't remember Ruby, maybe one eight seven or something. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so you found yourself, uh, at ThoughtBot doing upcase kind of what was the journey from like getting into Ruby to landing into kind of that role where you're kind of like teaching too. Hmm. I always really enjoyed teaching. So I think this was, um, somewhat likely to happen anyway. But the specific path for me was back when I was getting into Ruby, there was a, a website, a company called Peep Code, and they made really high quality, Jeffrey Grosenbach made really high quality um, screencasts teaching you how to use things. And it was kind of Ruby focused. And I really admired his videos and also just his business model. And so one time he made a screencast that was like how to make screencasts like Peep Code. And so I bought that and was like, all right, I'm going to make my own. Um, I'm going to make my own video and sell it on the internet. And so I recorded um, a thing that I called Vim for Rails developers because I had gotten pretty, pretty legit. I'd, I'd spent a lot of time getting my Vim set up all dialed in for doing Ruby and Rails development. And my coworkers were frequently um, impressed by things I could help them do. And so I was like, maybe people will buy this. And so I recorded that video and I put it on the internet uh, up and I hosted it on Shopify at the time because that was like where you put things to be sold on the internet and like actually got some sales. And that like really changed my perspective on the world. Whereas the first time a stranger had paid me money on the internet, 
And like I could go to sleep and wake up and like have sold a couple of copies of this $9 screencast. And it wasn't big money, but it was like, oh my God, this money came in while I wasn't doing anything. And it really blew my mind. And that was sort of the, the first instance of like, okay, I can teach stuff and get money out. And that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. Were, were you always kind of uh, entrepreneurial minded like that? Nah, maybe. I hadn't really done other entrepreneurial activities. I had been thinking for a long time that like, hey, owning a software company seems like kind of the best job. Like if you can make that work, that seems like a really awesome life. And so I kind of always had in the back of my head, like one day I want to own a software company and like run that. That seems great. But I, I, don't, I hadn't done many like specific activities towards that yet. If I'm not mistaken, when you were at ThoughtBot, there were a couple of like actual like software projects that weren't like client work, but actual like software as a service that you were actually involved in. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Uh, yeah. So um, ThoughtBot had a couple SaaS apps and I would kind of get lightly involved with those. But the, the one that I really um, got involved with most of all was actually Upcase. So because I had made this video and a couple others I had a little bit of experience and credibility in the like selling knowledge world. And ThoughtBot had a couple of courses that it had put online, like recorded versions of their in-person workshops, and we're selling them online. And so one day I went to the CEO, Chad, and said, hey, we should take um, all of ThoughtBot's videos, plus the ones that I ha- I've made, and we should uh, charge a subscription for them and like put them all under sort of one banner and grow that library and like build a community of people that, that want to level up their, their Ruby and Rails shops. And in typical Chad fashion, he said, yeah, it sounds good. Go do it. And so eventually that became Upcase, which uh, became a, a pretty decently sized business unit inside ThoughtBot. That's awesome. Uh, since then, you are no longer at ThoughtBot. And uh, before we kind of get into Tuple, I'm curious kind of uh, what kind of road you've been down since you know you left ThoughtBot to where you are today. Hmm. Um, it was a little bit of a winding path. So I left ThoughtBot because I had been there about six years and it's an amazing company. And like, if you're thinking about working there, you totally should because it's great. I didn't leave because it wasn't awesome. Uh, I just left because I had done a lot of things in ThoughtBot. I had had a a bunch of different jobs and worked on a bunch of different projects and I didn't quite see the next one. And there was always, like I said, that thing in the back of my mind where it's like, I know I kind of need to work for myself. I think like that just seems too cool to not eventually try it. So I left, but at the time, I didn't uh, know what I wanted to do. So I spent the first maybe nine months uh, making another course, like making another info product, which was uh, my course, um, what's it even called? Oh, called Refactoring Rails, which is about how do you uh, maintain a somewhat more mature, larger Rails app, which was just distilling a lot of the lessons I had learned at ThoughtBot and launched that. And that did pretty well. So that sort of sustained me uh, for, for a period of time. But... Uh, I just, that time, that almost a year working alone made it really clear to me that I didn't, whatever I was going to do, I didn't want to do it by myself. Like I got a co-working space and I made some friends and all that, but I'm just not a solo operator. That's not what makes me happy. I need people around me. And so um, after doing that for a while, about a year, I was like, you know what? I think I don't know what to do next, but like, if I don't know, I may as well go get like a cushy dev job to kind of pass the time while I figure out what the next thing is. So I took a job at a company that made software for hedge funds and worked there for a few months. And that was that appealed to me because they were using Elm and Haskell, which I was really interested in, in at the time. Um, but I was only there for a handful of months when uh, the idea for Tuple hit me 
And I also simultaneously found the co-founders that, uh, or like <laughs> settled in on the co-founders that I was going to work with. Awesome. So now, uh, do you mind kind of giving us a brief overview of Tuple and kind of how the idea came about? Totally. Yeah. So Tuple is a app for doing remote pair programming. So it's a little bit like something like Slack Calls. If you designed Slack Calls from the bottom up to be really fast, uh, better using uh, using your system resources, and to be tailored for the kind of things that you do when you're remote pair programming. So I'll give you one quick example. Like if you are uh, pairing and you have a driver and a navigator, and the navigator has found an interesting Stack Overflow article, if you're using a generic screen sharing tool, maybe there's some chat you can drop that into, or maybe you go over to like your Slack DMs and like DM it to someone. But that's not like a clear way of like, hey, how do we get on the same literal page? Whereas we have a little box you drop that link into, and it will automatically open up in a new tab in your driver's browser. So you can very quickly be like looking at the same article. And we have a number of little touches like that, where we tried to build the app that we would want if we're like remote pairing all the time, because it seemed to us that like no one was really serving this market. And there used to be this wonderful tool called Screen Hero that we had used and loved. And Screen Hero got uh, purchased by Slack and uh, ostensibly rolled into the product, but not really. Like everyone is, it's pretty clear to everyone that Slack calls was not what Screen Hero was. Um, and so there was this gap in the market where it was like, there was this great tool, people liked it. We liked it. And like, why isn't anyone else building this? And so I asked myself that for a number months and never got a good answer. And one day I pitched that idea to uh, the first of my co-founders. And he was like, you know, that does sound pretty compelling. And uh, a couple months later, we had both quit our jobs and found our third co-founder. Wow. So yeah, I use Screen Hero a little bit. Um, but it, it felt very much like just another like screen of, of all the screen sharing tools, it was the best, mm-hmm. but it's kind of just felt like another screen sharing tool. So I'm really interested when you say things like you can just drop this link in, it opens in a tab. Like those are such like finesse touches. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's, and we want to add more of those. So at the core tuple is, and has to be really good, basically transparent, low latency screen sharing. And so like, for instance, that, that low latency bit is like an example of how we are choosing to make it for pair programming and not for just generic screen sharing. Like if I'm just sharing you, showing you my screen and like, like doing a, a PowerPoint presentation or something, it doesn't matter if it takes an extra 300 milliseconds to get to you. That's no big deal. You won't even really notice it. But if I want you to be able to type on my machine or use the mouse and drag windows around, every millisecond of latency matters. Even a little bit feels pretty bad. And so we're constantly managing our trade-offs so as to optimize for that particular use case. So if you are uh, Google Hangouts, you probably don't care about that 300 milliseconds and you won't spend the time to reduce it. Whereas we care about that. And so we'll do a trade-off like um, rather than degrading the screen quality when your connection gets a little bit worse, uh, we will instead throw frames away. So if, if, I'm not sh- if I'm showing you like large diagrams and it gets a little fuzzy, that's fine. But if you and I are reading texts together, uh, at like a fairly tight resolution and we degrade the video quality that suddenly you can't read the code. And so what good is it? It may as well not be there. But if we instead say, okay, we're, we're having some trouble uh, getting the frames across the wire, just toss them and like just update to whatever the latest is as soon as we can get it. Uh, that's sort of like a, a great example of deciding who the customer is and what the use case is has let us hone this product in on, on something useful, hopefully. 
that makes a lot of sense because you, whenever you use Google Hangouts or something, it just goes really blurry all the time. And then you're like, well, I can't see anything at all. It's kind of not worth using period because you're trying to read text. And if that's blurry, well, it's not useful. Do you, mm-hmm. do you guys also have a lot of uh, things to deal with um, for, for doing like mouse support? Cause that's something that like Google Hangouts doesn't do or um, a lot of the screen sharing kind of things don't allow too good of control across. Right. Yeah. That's another thing where that's crucial for us is like the, the idea is that when you're the guest or the navigator on someone's computer, it should feel as close as possible to like, like you're sitting right next to them. Like you're plugged, you've plugged in your mouse and keyboard to the same machine. So um, one thing that we have done is we came up with a mouse mode uh, called tag team, where when the call starts, the person who's sharing their screen has control. But if at any point the guest wants to take over mouse control, they left click once and then suddenly they have control of the system mouse and the, uh, the host, the driver, uh, does not. And so there's a, a, a like a one, it's literally a one click handoff mouse back and forth. If, if either side left clicks, they get the mouse instantly. And there's like a little visual indicator change. So you know who has control. And we wanted it to be like super seamless. Also, we're working on a dual mouse cursor mode so that each person has what looks like uh, their own mouse. The reality is uh, more hacky than that, unfortunately. But uh, that's that's the, the direction we're going. So at this time, do you support like all the major operating systems? Or are you just focusing on one for right now? Yeah, we support all of them as long as all of them means macOS. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, is there plans for trying to get out into the other operating systems? I'm not sure. So far, it has not been a deal breaker for a lot of our customers. Uh, or for basically almost anybody, like a lot of our leads. It's rare that I start talking to someone. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, we have people on Windows. We need that. That's a deal breaker. It turns out there's a ton of developers using macOS. And so like, I would love to never have to build another client. Um, it would keep our lives very simple. So if we can get away with not doing it, we probably will not do it. But uh, there may come a day where it's like, okay, we feel like this will let us you know, grow a huge amount. And we've decided we want to grow and we're willing to take on that additional complexity. Uh, and we'll have to sort of evaluate that on the fly. One question I have, you mentioned earlier that there's some Rails code mm-hmm. uh, or some Ruby code, at least somewhere in here. How does that tie into this type of application? So the app is peer-to-peer. So once the call has started, uh, all communication is happening between the two clients, which are both written mostly in C++ uh, for speed and low uh, system user resource usage. But uh, the initial call connection is brokered by the Rails uh, app. So like, I need to be able to see who's online and like initiate a call. And so the server sort of makes the introduction and then lets the clients uh, go off and do their thing. Okay, cool. Uh, so that was my next question. So it, your clients are actually mostly C++. Any, any other languages involved here? I don't know much about like Mac OS development. Yeah, there is some Swift. So the, the sort of the core of the app is written in C++. And then there's a Swift layer for interfacing with actually like the OS itself um, and handling like a little bit of the UI and things like mouse coordinates and keyboard input and things like that. Cool. Uh, before I move on, kind of a little bit after Tuple, Chris, do you have any other questions about Tuple? Uh, no, you can go ahead. Cool. So you also mentioned you're kind of move, you're doing less programming, more like I guess marketing and sales. Um, mm-hmm. From a distance, as just someone who uh, observes kind of you know, on Twitter and things like that, 
you seem to have like very like natural like knack for that. Hmm. How do you how do you feel moving in that position? Well, I appreciate that. Um, I feel pretty good actually. I wouldn't say it's my favorite thing. Like I enjoy programming a bit more than doing sales calls or thinking about marketing efforts for sure. But I, it feels like a sacrifice I'm very willing to make for this business because I want it to succeed. And I think that not thinking about sales and marketing is just a classic way to fail as a like developer run business. Like if, like if we all, there have been times where we're all writing code and it's like, this is not, this is not how you make a successful company. I think like, yes, it'll get you a lot of code, but what you really need are customers that are happy. So it's it's been pretty pretty fine. I, I think you're right. I do have a bit of a knack for it. I don't I don't feel like it was a huge like leap to be okay at it. I wouldn't say I'm great at it, but there is a little bit of mm, cheating or something. Or like I have a I have a an an advantage off the bat, which is that I'm one of the co-founders. So every time you're talking to someone, it's like, hey, like I'm the CEO. Like if if I promise you something, I can make it happen. Like there's no bureaucracy. Uh, we can we can get stuff done for you. And be responsive and all that. So I think it's 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 not like I've I've figured out sales to the point where I can train someone else to do it. Which is I, th- I think that's when you know you've actually got it. For now, there's sort of this su- semi unfair advantage of being one of the fa- the co founders and doing it. But so so far so good. So so we'll see. I think I'm getting better at it over time. Awesome. Uh, do you mind sharing if they're like any kind of lesson since you've made this transition you've learned about like marketing and sales that you weren't aware of? before you started doing all this? Yeah, I'll throw some stuff out. So like one is that it's worth testing a lot of different price points. Like the the, the first person that I asked to, to pay for the product and that did pay for it uh, was at a number that is, I don't know, almost a tenth of what other people have been willing to pay. So that's just like, if I hadn't tested a whole range of prices, I wouldn't know like where the extremes were. I might've just stayed at that, that sort of low price. I also have been a little bit shocked at how painful it can be to sell into larger companies like like vendor qualification forms, uh, like security audits, um, like cr- like asking if we do criminal background checks of all our employees, like all this this kinds of crap. Like these these bigger companies have departments of people who, as far as I can tell, their job is basically to make your life terrible uh, for basically no gain. Where like they they do things like uh, do you, there was a question on a, on a survey I had to fill out, which was, do you have any programs in place to make sure no human trafficking is taking place in your supply chain? And I said, no. And that didn't matter. So like, who decided to put that on there? Who thinks this is useful? Like, so I've come, I'm in this weird situation where it's like, for these bigger companies, I want to charge them way more to like, make up for the fact that it's so annoying to sell to them. And it's just, it's like, this is just like stupid friction in the gears of progress. Yikes. Do you, where are you guys at kind of on the the launch? Are you, you're, you're beta right now? Is that right? So we're technically still in alpha, although we're I think we're going to move out of alpha pretty soon. The app is mostly pretty stable. It mostly does what it says it does. Um, we still have crashes and bugs for sure. And there's there's some features that we need to add that are, are fairly core. But I think we're ready for beta pretty soon. Um, so and, and as far as launch, I think it's going to be a long time before it's like anyone can sign up and, and do it with no interaction with us. Like there's a lot of benefit in me having at least one call with everyone that signs up and just finding out who they are and what they need and just making sure I'm sort of in touch with our customers. And so I, I don't think we want to give that up for, for quite a while. Uh, but I am actively recruiting and adding teams to uh, our list of people in the beta and giving them trials and all that. Um, so if that's you and it's not a huge pain to sell to you, by the way, like I don't need to fill out a million forms and an NDA and all this crap, 
uh, and you have a big remote team and want to try something like this, uh, I would like to hear from you. So please do get in touch. Are, are you copying that idea from uh, Superhuman where, where they have the onboarding uh, process that you have to go through? They are for sure an inspiration. And I think their onboarding is pretty awesome. I'm actually doing a little bit less onboarding than they do. So I, at first, I was onboarding everyone into the product. Like I would, everyone had to do a call in Tuple with me to get going. And I would show them bits of the UI and stuff. I've now um, written a like email sequence that goes out sort of one a day like with tips that have all that stuff that I was teaching manually. And so I'm going to try that for a while and hope it works because I would love to like, sometimes we sign up people that have like 20 developers for a trial. And it's like scheduling 20, 25 minute, 30 calls would be pretty brutal. So I'm hoping I can do this more scalably and not have it really fall down in quality. Yeah, that that would save a heck of a lot of time if you were trying to schedule that many, you know, if you were doing those individually or all at once, regardless, huge pain in the ass and you know, that's probably one of the nice parts about superhuman that they just are doing one at a time. So it's it's a lot easier to schedule. Um, yep. What do you... And hopefully, go ahead. Hopefully our product is a little bit easier to get going with. Like superhuman takes a workflow that someone has that's like very core to their life and like changes it pretty dramatically. And there's like a pretty high like learning curve for their app, I would say. Whereas Tuple is mostly designed to just stay out of the, your way. Like it should mostly just feel like you're not even using it. It should fade to the background. Are you targeting Tuple more towards teams or because I know, you know, Screen Hero is kind of like a thing everyone just downloads and you can add any of your friends and, and whatever. But that was probably also because it was free. Um, so I imagine you guys are going in a slightly different direction with that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the the willingness to pay and the like lack of uh, support requests and stuff with teams is pretty substantially higher. Actually, I wouldn't say the support thing is true yet. We'll, we'll see about that. But it, willingness to pay is definitely there. Um, someone who is like a solo freelancer has a certain price range. Someone who has a team of 20 developers has a very different price range. The, the sensitivity is completely different. And as you'd imagine, we would much rather sign up 20 customers at a time than one. So I would say our focus is very much on teams for sure. But I also think um, solo people inviting their friends and having some way for this thing to spread in, in like a fairly low cost or possibly freemium kind of way is also going to be useful for us in the long term. Like someone invites a, a friend and then it turns out that friend works at a larger company and then they all get tuple later. That d- definitely seems reasonable to me. So we're kind of, I think we're going to support a little bit of both actually. I think a lot of our efforts, especially in the early days are in signing up teams, but eventually I want to kind of uh, tap into this sort of naturally viral growth that we could potentially have where people say, you need to like go download the other side of this so I can pair with you right now. It makes sense. I mean, that's kind of the process that Slack took when they launched originally. It was kind of like, you know, get a few developers to try it out. And then all of a sudden they invite a few more people and then a whole different team is like, you know, signing up for Slack and all of that. So I could imagine, you know, having it start with developers and then spreading internally in teams like you know i imagine that salespeople might want to use it or whatever else um so there might be a whole bunch of interesting ways that that kind of spreads um and definitely will be different for you know the freelancer versus the company that has 25 developers that need to pair together totally yeah for now i think there's a lot of value for us in the focus so like our positioning is in a very narrow niche. Like this is a pair per, a low latency pair programming tool. It's not for generic screen sharing. Yes, you could certainly use it to share your screen and it might even be better than what you're using to do that now. But that's not who we're going after right now. That's not who we want to care about and like the way we're going to tailor the product at first. 
But as time passes, it's possible we widen that a little bit. We'll see. Awesome. Going to shift gears here just a little bit. Um, you came to Southeast Ruby in 2017. I think that was our first year. Hmm. And gave a talk on Elm, uh, a very compelling talk on why to use Elm. Uh, have you been doing any kind of Elm code between that talk and now? I don't think so. No, I don't think I've written any Elm since then, sadly. That is sad. Uh, <clears throat> kind of. We haven't talked much about Elm on this show. Um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing your thoughts as a Ruby developer, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of appeals to you about something like Elm? So Elm is kind of a particular implementation of a direction I think we will inexorably walk towards over the coming decades in programming, which is like, does anyone think that humans will ever get better uh, than AI at chess again? No, no one thinks that, right? Like once Deep Blue beats Gary Kasparov, it's never going to go back the other way. Computers just can get so much better, so much faster, so much smarter with time. And so to me, there's an analogy there to be made with programming, which is, is a human brain ever going to be as good as a type checker at like catching all the boundary conditions for something? No, definitely not. It does type, do type checkers do everything your, your brain do right now? No, but they're only going to get better. Like there's no way to make smarter people really, but there definitely is a way to make smarter compilers. And so I just think the state of the art of that will keep pushing further and further and humans won't get any smarter. So eventually languages without some sort of automated, make sure my program is correct stuff will just not be able to compete with ones that have that. And so Elm, I feel like, is, is kind of the narrow edge of that wedge. It's kind of like the leading edge that most people are, are bumping into right now, where someone has taken a really good, awesome, helpful compiler, and they have made it friendly and usable. And uh, people are, are now able to get real work done with it. And so I like Elm as kind of a small example of a larger trend. That makes sense. That's something like I, I had a conversation with you a couple of years ago about... Like I really, so I really love Ruby as a language. Um, I'm really interested in tooling around other languages that are like statically typed and compiled Mm -hmm. because I'm just, I'm fascinated to know what a computer can do for me Mm -hmm. uh, to make my life easier. Is there something else, uh, another language outside of Elm maybe because Elm's mostly front end focused, correct? Correct. It only runs in the browser. Is there kind of a backend language that kind of excites you or piques your interest similar to that? Not really. Um, I thought Haskell was going to be that, but it's way too crufty or something. Like it's just, it's unfortunate. Like it, it has an incredibly great compiler, like a really powerful type system. And so there's a lot of promise there. But a lot of the brilliance of Elm is actually that it just like took a lot of the Haskell. Uh, type checker and just made it friendlier and like removed a lot of of the decades of cruft from Haskell. Um, so I, like people would probably be offended at me calling it Haskell Lite, but it kind of is. Uh, so I, I don't I'm not aware of a server side language that like checks all those boxes for me just yet. But I suspect it's it's coming. Cool. Uh, my last question for you: uh, What outside of doing tuple and everything else you got going on. What is, uh, what has been like to do for fun? Hmm. 
Um, I spend uh, basically all, all my free time doing one of a couple things, and that's generally either singing or rock climbing. So I sing in two barbershop quartets and a chorus, um, and that eats up a lot of time. I have gigs for that and rehearsals for that and whatnot, and that's something I've been doing my whole life. I've always loved to sing. Uh, and then rock climbing is kind of my like default fitness thing these days. I actually am fortunate enough to go like we sneak away during the day, my co-founders and I, and like bike over to the rock gym and climb a little bit in the middle of the day, and it's pretty great. That's awesome. I heard so much like healthiness in that. We bike over to the climbing gym, and I'm like sitting on my chair all day. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, it makes a huge, huge difference. Like, it, it feel at first, I felt like guilty, like, oh man, we should be working, and then I realized, like, hey, we're all more productive when we are relaxed and happy because we've had some exercise recently. That's awesome, uh, Chris. Do you have any questions, thoughts, anything you'd like to throw out there? Oh no, mostly uh, for anybody that's interested. Where can they find you and Tuple and your co-founders and any sure. other places? Yeah, um, you can email me if you want. I'm ben at tuple.app or you can hit tuple.app to join our mailing list. And that is where we find most of our people uh, for like bringing into for trials and things like that. Uh, I'm r00k on Twitter. Uh, and there's links to my co-founders Twitters on uh, that um, landing page as well. Cool. Awesome. Chris, we will, we will do this again. Ben, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Um, My pleasure. Hey, one more thing I, I realized I should mention, because um, I, I want to provide some value, which is I've written a big pair programming guide. So if you are at all interested in like leveling up your pair programming, if you go to learn to I've tried to put basically everything I know in that guide. It's like there's quite a bit there. There's links to podcasts and videos and articles and all that. And uh, hopefully that will be useful. You don't need an account or anything for that. It's just free information. And hopefully you enjoy it. Cool. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes too for anyone listening. Cool. Please do. All right, Chris, I will see you soon. All right. Take care. Take care, guys.